Uh, we're focusing on Jesus' resurrection this morning. We've been doing that for the last three weeks in a series uh, in the book of First Corinthians, just in chapter 15 of that book. Uh, it is a chapter that is all about resurrection. So we're going to continue that uh, look at that chapter this morning. I do encourage you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to First Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 20 to 34, and I encourage you to follow along as I read it. As soon as I find it. It says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, he who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Well, if we were to back up to the first part of this chapter, first part of this passage where we were a couple of weeks ago, that the chapter starts out by saying, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. That word gospel simply means good news. And the passage we are looking at this morning is filled with good news. This is a good news kind of passage. So I want to draw your attention to four things we learn about this good news. And the first one is simply the reminder that the gospel is the announcement of good news. And I need to start here because of where we left off last week. We finished off at verse 19. Verse 19 of this chapter says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That was a pretty depressing place to end off last week. I kind of felt bad for giving that to Vin and making him leave us there. In fact, the entirety of the passage we covered last week, explored how the, explored the idea of how different things would be in the world if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. It is a bit of a depressing thought experiment, but it's a necessary one. 
I, I haven't seen it, but the idea of verses 12 to 19 is similar to the premise of the Amazon TV series, The Man in the High Castle. The premise of that show is a dystopian alternate history where the Axis powers actually won World War II. The show projects how different the world would be if the Nazi powers had not been defeated. As I understand it, Germany and Japan have divided the United States into greater, into the greater Nazi Reich in the east, with New York City as its capital, and the Japanese Pacific states in the west, with San Francisco as its capital. Verses 12 to 19 function like that. They paint a picture of the world without Jesus' resurrection ever taking place. And they leave us in complete misery. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But then comes verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, if you're keeping score at home, that's another one of the Bible's big buts. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This verse reverses everything that was said in verses 12 to 19. Because in fact, Christ has been from the dead, our preaching is not in vain. Your faith is not futile. You are not still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep have not simply perished or ceased to exist. And we are not to be pitied. That is good news. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, we covered the in fact part of that equation in the first part of this chapter. And there we saw that the resurrection of Jesus was verified by the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, by the testimony of eyewitnesses, and the testimony of those who have been transformed by an encounter with the risen Jesus. This morning, I want to focus on the other two parts of that verse. The fact that Christ has been raised from the dead and that he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. As I said a couple of weeks ago, there is no gospel, there is no good news apart from the resurrection of Jesus. And I remember hearing one dad relate the story of telling his young son or trying to explain to him, he said to his son, Jesus died for you. And his son replied, Oh, no. Actually, that little boy had it right. I mean, if Jesus died and stayed dead, the best we could say is, oh, no. It's come to a sad end. There would be no good news in that. The death of Jesus without the resurrection of Jesus is pointless. The best we could say is something like, well, at least he died staying true to his principles. But Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And his point is that this changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It means that death does not have the last word. It means we're not just a clump of cells that cease to exist when we die. It means that this life is not a sort of purposeless meandering through time. 
The resurrection of Jesus means that we can have confidence that despite what suffering we might experience now, we are not to be pitied. Now, the last part of verse 20 refers to Jesus as the first fruits. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What on earth does that mean? Well, the background to that is one of the Jewish feasts in the Old Testament. You can read about this feast in Leviticus chapter 23. The first fruits refers to the first part of the crop. It was seen as a representative example of what was to come with the rest. The first fruits was seen as a pledge of assurance of what was to come. It's kind of like what happens when we see the first cherry blossoms appear on the trees around us. We know spring is just around the corner. At the Feast of first fruits, you would bring the first part of your crop to the priest as an offering to the Lord. It was a way of saying, look, I can offer this as a sacrifice because I have every confidence that what is true of this first part of the crop will be true of the rest as well. It's coming. To give you a non-agricultural metaphor, we could think about the connection between thunder and lightning. When you see a flash of lightning in the sky, you know that thunder will follow shortly. It's a physical necessity. The only question is, how long will it be between that flash of lightning and the roll or, or the rumble of thunder? And in some ways, that's the fun part of a thunderstorm, right? You don't know exactly how long it's going to be between the lightning and the thunder, but you know the thunder is coming. You wait for it, but you don't wait for it with a question mark. Will it happen? You wait for it with a sense of expectation and anticipation. I know this is going to happen. The first domino has already fallen. The rest will fall too. Because this happened, I know this is going to happen. That's what it means to say that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection has cracked the sky open, so to speak, and now we wait for our resurrection. Our mini-series on the resurrection is entitled, The Death of Death and the Hope of of life. We called it that because that's the movement of this chapter. It moves from Jesus' resurrection in history, him as the first fruits, to our eventual resurrection as a result. Jesus' resurrection from the dead meant the death of death, and because he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, it means the certainty of our own resurrection. It's one other thing worth pointing out about Jesus being the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, then you will know that Jesus was not actually the first person to rise from the dead. The Old Testament contains the stories of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Each of them raised someone from the dead in the course of their ministry. In the course of his ministry, Jesus raised a number of people from the dead. He raised a a widow's son from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. So if that's the case, in what sense is Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? Well, what makes Jesus' resurrection different from every other resurrection that took place 
is that those other individuals died again. Theirs was a temporary resurrection. But Jesus conquered death once and for all. The New Testament is careful to remind us that Jesus not only raised from the dead, rose from the dead, but ascended into heaven. The ancient creeds were careful to lay stress on this as well. The the Apostles' Creed put it this way. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's just verse 20. So we need to move on. The gospel is the announcement of good news. And secondly, I have to say that we won't fully appreciate the good news without first coming to terms or confronting the bad news. Listen again to verses 20 and 21. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So what's the bad news? Well, the bad news is, that we are all described as being in Adam. And because we are all in Adam, it means that we all die. Now, death is one of those realities we would rather not talk about. We'd rather not confront it. We don't spend a lot of time talking about death in our culture. It's a subject most of us like to avoid. Now, maybe we've talked about it a little bit more over the last couple of years, but on the whole, it's a subject we, we tend to steer clear of. And people have different responses when it comes to talking about death. The difference in attitudes towards death can, can be seen really throughout history. In the Victorian era, they spoke often about death. Victorians never spoke about sex, but they spoke about death a great deal. And we have reversed that trend. We speak incessantly about sex and almost never about death. Some time ago, I read through this short book entitled Remember Death. And the author highlights some of the ways that that we have collectively shielded ourselves from the reality of death. He says this, a little historical context helps us. See how unique our experience really is. 300 years ago, it was impossible to avoid death because death was everywhere. Death dwelt within the family, as one historian put it. It happened not only to your grandparents, it happened to your daddy, it happened to your little brother, it happened to your new bride, it happened to your children. Now today, look, we're, we're all living longer. Most, most deaths today happen in the hospital, not in the home. Antibiotics, modern medicine have allowed us to overcome many of the things that would have resulted in certain death in times past. So imagine, for example, that you lived in Andover, Massachusetts during the 1600s. The average married couple in those years would give birth to roughly nine children. But three of those nine children would die before they were 21 years old. And for some families, the reality was worse than that. Even at the end of the 18th century, which is actually not that long ago, four of five people died before the age of 70. Average life expectancy was in the late 30s. Now the average is nearly 80 years old. So we're doing better, but death is every bit as much a certainty today. The current death rate, as I understand it, is 100%. 
worldwide, three people die every second. 180 people every minute. 250 or 11,000 every hour. That's more than 250,000 people around the world die every day. And one day, it will be our turn or the turn of someone close to us. Death is an inescapable reality. That's the bad news. But the problem, actually, the bad news is not just death. The problem is not just that all die. The problem is the reason for death. These verses tell us that by a man came death. It says, for as by a man came death. And then in verse 22, for as in Adam all die. The man being referred to is Adam. And this is not the only time we encounter this idea in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul states it this way. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death entered the world as a result of sin entering the world, and sin entered the world through Adam. Now, this takes us all the way back to creation. This is how long this has been a problem. In Genesis chapter 2, we read this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Adam did eat from that tree. And the death that accompanied that eating was both spiritual and physical. That sin and that death spread to every one of us. This is what I mean by saying that the problem is not just death, but the reason for death. The problem is that we are all in Adam. But what, is it, what exactly does that mean to say we are in Adam? How does Adam's sin affect me? Well, we might think, well, this means that we sin in a similar way to him. We sort of imitate his pattern. We too rebel against God. And that is true. But that's not the whole story. We might go further and say, well, look, we inherited his sinful nature. His DNA now resides in us. So we can't help ourselves but sin. That also is true, but that also is not the whole story. The language here is that Adam was our representative before God. Adam represented all of humanity. Death came through one man. Now, maybe that sounds unfair to you. I mean, how come Adam got to be our representative? Maybe I would have made a different choice. Maybe I wouldn't have eaten that fruit. I'd rather represent myself. Look, the the truth is none of us would have fared any better. But I suspect the reason we struggle with this idea of Adam as our representative, especially in the West, is because of our rugged individualism. We're not used to thinking in collective terms that someone can represent us. So maybe an illustration will help. So imagine for a moment that I have a sudden heart attack and die. Right here on the stage. 
you immediately call 911. In the meantime, you want to know if I am in fact dead. You check, my heart has stopped beating. But you want to be sure. And you could do this with any part of my body, but let's say you do an evaluation of my big toe. You poke it, you prod it, and what you would find is that my big toe is every bit as dead as the rest of me. Now, the toe might think, that's not fair. Lee didn't have a toe attack. He had a heart attack. Why am I dead? Why is my toe dead? Because it is in me or on me. It belongs to me. And that is how it is for all who are in Adam. Theologians refer to Adam as our federal head. This means that he represents us. And in our natural state, every one of us is in Adam. And because we are all in Adam, we all die. That is the bad news. But notice what else it says here. It says, as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. So let's go back to my big toe for a minute. When I had my heart attack, you called 911. The paramedics rushed in. They took their electric paddles. They put them on my chest. They turned the dial all the way up. And after a couple of rounds of that, my heart started beating again. I came back to life, so to speak. You would all start clapping, right? I would get up. I would start dancing, uh, uh, dancing around on the stage. And you would notice that my big toe was very much alive. And why is my toe alive? Because it is in me or on me because it belongs to me. This is what happens to those who are in Christ. We're not resurrected because of something we have done. We are, we are resurrected We're raised to life because we belong to Jesus, because we are in him. And the truth of these verses is that we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. One of them is our representative. And whichever one it is makes all the difference. There's a memorable scene in the movie Hoosiers, probably the best basketball movie ever, right? Even better than Air Bud. But in that movie, that that movie recounts the unlikely state championship of a high school basketball team in a rural town in Indiana. The townsfolk aren't very favorable towards the, the team's new coach, Norman Dale, played by Gene Hackman. What's more... The team's star player from years past, Jimmy Chitwood, has decided against playing on the team for his senior season. This creates a perfect storm in this basketball crazy town. It it culminates in an impromptu town hall meeting to vote on Coach Dale's termination. The voting results are overwhelming. He will be fired. But minutes before the announce our results... The the results are announced. Jimmy walks in to announce his intentions to rejoin the basketball team. 
prompting the eruption of applause in the crowd who has gathered. But to everybody's surprise, including Coach Norman Dale, he offers a stipulation that turns the tables and guarantees Coach Dale's ongoing presence. He says, I play, Coach stays. He goes, I go. That is what Jesus has done for us. We were under a sentence far worse, than lo- far worse than losing our job as a basketball coach. We were condemned to death because we were in Adam. Jesus has walked in the room and said, this one belongs to me. He lives because I live. That's the good news of the gospel. But we need to come face to face with the bad news about sin and death before we can really appreciate just how good that news is. Well, there's a third thing we discover in this passage, which is that the good news didn't end with Jesus' resurrection. One of the things that I think I probably say every Easter Sunday is that the good news of Easter is not just that Jesus was raised but that Jesus is risen. And this is really what we see in this passage in verses 23 to 28 as it goes on to describe this. It says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what we have in these verses is the description of what Jesus has done in the past, what he is doing in the present, and what he will do in the future. Now we've covered the past. Jesus rose from the dead. That's what he has done. What's he doing in the present? A lot of people are kind of fuzzy on this. We understand that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. We understand that he will return at some point. But what is he doing in the meantime? Well, the answer, according to verse 25, is that he is reigning or ruling over his kingdom. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. But wait, but wait a minute. You might wonder, well, if Jesus is reigning now, why is the world still such a mess? Why is death still the dark cloud that hangs over every human life? Well, to answer that, you need to understand something about the chronology of the kingdom of God. The best way to explain that is to say that the coming of Jesus, at the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God was inaugurated. It began, but it wasn't consummated. Or completed. So Jesus' coming and his ministry mark the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. His ministry and his miracles give us a glimpse of what will one day be true. But the full experience of that will come about only at his return. That's why it says here, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority. And then it goes on to say that the last enemy to be defeated is death. So we live in that in-between time. That's what I mean by saying that the good news didn't end with Jesus' resurrection. The best news is still to come. 
Verse 26 says, the last enemy to be defeated is death. And make no mistake, death is an enemy. Now, Jesus defeated death. Jesus' resurrection was a, the first fruits of it, but we're still waiting for the rest of the crop to come in. That will take place one day. And here's how the book of Revelation describes what will one day be true. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the news. That is the good news that is still to come. That one day this world will not be a place that is filled with sorrow and pain and sickness and heartache and death. Best news is still to come. The final thing to notice from this passage is that possessing this good news allows us to face whatever life throws at us. Now, verse 29 actually sounds like a sharp left turn when you read this passage. It says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, baptism for the dead. What is that about? Well, we have to remember, this is part of a sustained argument that's taking place all through chapter 15. There were some in the city of Corinth who were saying, well, there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul is not endorsing baptism for the dead. He's not saying, well, look, if you've got dead loved ones and relatives, you ought to go get baptized for them. What he is doing is pointing out that people instinctively know that there is more to life than this life. That there is something beyond death. That's why they're getting baptized for the dead. And he's just pointing that out. Now, while baptism for the dead was a common practice in the first century and not our day, you still find all sorts of practices today, rituals from all over the world that demonstrate an innate belief that there is something beyond death. Now, whether it's ancient Egyptian burial practices whether it's baptisms for the dead in the first century or whether it's 21st century visits to the cemetery or the spreading of ashes in meaningful places. All of those things reflect a belief that there is some kind of life beyond death. Not all of those beliefs are correct, but the fact that this is a universal phenomenon says something about the fact that God has put eternity into the hearts of man. That deep down we know there's more than just this life. The real thrust of this section though is found in verses 31 and 32 where it says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. And then he says, what do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What Paul is saying here is that there are two ways to live. 
There is a way to live that says, look, this life is all there is, so you might as well just eat and drink because you're going to die one day. Just enjoy it. This is the worldview of the materialist. Life is only what you make of it. And since this life is all there is, the one with the most toys at the end wins. I mean, what possible purpose could there be in sickness or in suffering? Life is only good as long as your circumstances allow you to enjoy it. But what about when they're not? What do you do then? But there's another way to live. There is a way to live that allows us to face life's trials with confidence. And Paul had first-hand experience with this. He says this, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? Now, we're not even sure exactly what Paul is referring to here. Christians were sometimes, sometimes thrown to the lions or other wild beasts for sport. Maybe Paul had an experience like that. Maybe he's speaking metaphorically. We don't know. But we do know that Paul endured many hardships for the sake of the gospel. And what was it that made those hardships worthwhile? What was his hope in the resurrection? Listen to what he says in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So what could possibly make all of that worth it? What is it that can possibly make sense of a life filled with hardship and heartbreak and suffering? And the answer is the hope of the resurrection. See, because when you have your hope in something beyond This life, it allows you to endure whatever it is that life throws your way. Elsewhere, Paul says this, and I'll close here. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison." As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And what Paul is saying is we need to put our hope in something eternal. Because everything in this world will fail us at some point, including our own bodies. But our hope is in the resurrection. And our hope is certain because of Jesus' resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news day. We thank you for this day that we have gathered to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, to reflect on it. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, we would be filled with hope, with your hope. God, we pray that as we move about even just this week, we pray that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves and that you have said you are for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.